new life, a fresh breeze in our sails? Have you ever thought about what it would feel like to experience resurrection? Think about it. What would it feel like to actually experience resurrection? We have so many thoughts about the resurrection, but they tend to be theological. They tend to be abstract. They hold us at arm's length from the reality. What would it feel like to experience resurrection? I think I've told most of you, most of you know that I'm adopted. And a few years ago, I was looking through the adoption papers. They're hidden away in our safe someplace. And I came across a document that actually had my birth date a year later than my birth date. You know what that felt like? Think about that for a second. Suddenly, you get a whole year to do over again. It was like new life, a fresh breeze. For those few minutes before I realized that was the typo. Of course, that was the typo, yeah. For a few minutes there, I had a whole year back. It buoyed me up. It was something that it was, it was hard to describe. But it was like that fresh breeze in the sails. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone, a good friend, and you knew that you were on the outs, and it just killed you inside? And you go over the conversation over and over again. You're thinking, what could I have done differently? What could I have said differently? What can I do to make this right? You stay awake at night and you're planning the next conversation you're going to have with that person with all the tension and all the longing to have that relationship restored. And when you see the person, there's just that flash in the eyes and you know that it's okay and you embrace. And all that tension, all that stuff you are carrying around just flows out in a moment. And you're restored. And you're home again. New life. Fresh breeze in the sails. A few of you have told me about when the doctor tells you that your cancer is in remission, that they don't see it on the scope anymore. I can only imagine what that feels like. New life. Fresh breeze in the sails. Now you can say it's not the same. It's not the same as Jesus, right? It's not a miracle. It's not a supernatural miracle. But we're just talking here about what would it feel like to be in the presence of, to understand somehow, some way, that what you thought was over is just beginning again in a different form. Yes, I know. You know it's not the same exactly. But we need to understand what it would feel like. We need to bring this home What is the most important image that you can take away from this gathering this morning? What is it? After all the Easter's that you've spent, after all the Easter's that you've lived through, how many of them have been transformative? How many of them have fundamentally changed your life, your direction, who you see yourself to be and understand yourself to be? To experience new life, to experience this resurrection, is transformative. We focus on the supernatural. We focus on that miracle. We focus on God's power. We always have. The church always has. The awesomeness of that power. The awe-inspiringness of that power. But here's the thing. The Gospels 
don't focus on the resurrection itself. The Gospels focus on the effect the resurrection had on Jesus' closest friends and on his followers, not the resurrection itself. The Gospel story picks up after the resurrection has already happened. And it follows Jesus' friends through everything that they have to go through to try to get enough of their minds and hearts wrapped around this reality for it to begin to do its work on them. It focuses on their reactions. The gospel story itself tells us where to look, tells us where to focus. It's not at the miracle. That is shrouded. And you can say, well, nobody was there to see it. The Gospels tell us stories and details about things no one was there to see. How do we know what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Have you ever thought about that? Who was there? They were all sleeping. It was important for us to know that. Somehow, it wasn't as important for us to know what happened in that tomb, but it was absolutely critical for us to know how this miracle affects our lives. Not just their lives our lives. If we say that we have inherited the Christian faith, if we say that we are following Jesus, then it's our lives that are at stake here. In other words, the question really becomes, it's not so much whether you believe in the miracle. It's what difference it makes that you believe in the miracle. How does your belief, how does your experience change things? in your life. What can these reactions teach us as we follow these stories and we follow everything that happens to this group of people starting on Sunday morning? What can it teach us right here, right now, 2,000 years later? It's fascinating when you think about it that nobody recognizes the risen Jesus when they first see him. Now, is that an important detail? (laughs) You know, the Gospels are really short. There's not a wasted word there. They're not writing by the inch, like people getting paid to write, you know. Every word is there absolutely on purpose. We're left trying to fill in details, not edit them away. Every detail is there absolutely on purpose, and it's showing something absolutely important to us. What's the point that nobody recognized the risen Jesus? Did Jesus look different somehow? Did he alter his appearance in his risen form? Well, if that's so, it's another miracle. And that doesn't teach us anything. Because it's a historical fact someplace in the ancient history, in the mists of time. How does that affect us right now? What does it teach us right now? In Luke's version, the women come at dawn to the tomb. And why did they do that? Marion was reading about that. It's because they were caught between two points of law right after Jesus died on the cross on Thursday afternoon. The law said that the body couldn't be left, had to be buried right away. And yet no activity could take place after sundown on Friday, which is the beginning of Shabbat. There was a mad scramble to get Jesus into a brand new tomb that was Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. But they didn't have time to do the embalming. They didn't have time to prepare the body. They had to get him in the tomb before sundown when all activity needed to stop. And so the women, they're frantic. You can imagine. They didn't get to do their job. They didn't get to do what they normally would do for their master. 
and they have to wait 24 hours until sundown on Saturday when Shabbat ends to go to the market and buy the spices and then have to wait the entire night until that first light when they could go to the tomb and finish what they couldn't finish on Friday night. This is why the women are coming first thing in the morning, laden with their spices, ready to do their duty for Jesus. And they're wondering how they're going to roll that stone back. It was huge. And yet when they get there, the stone is rolled away, and the tomb is empty, and they're confused by this. What in the world is going on? And then two men are there waiting for them. And this great line, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why did they? Actually, the better question is, why wouldn't they? Right? They watched him die agonizingly on Friday afternoon. They buried him on Friday afternoon. They buried him among the dead in that tomb. And they had every reason to expect him to stay put. Right? It didn't matter what he said. The reality, the logic, everything that you know trumps what may have been said at some point in your life. What we believe and what we expect to see is largely what we do see, not what's there. I love to tell this story. (laughs) You've heard it before, most of you I know, but for some of you, my jokes will be new again. Marion and I just had our 27th wedding anniversary about two weeks ago. But when we were only four weeks married, even though we had been together for over three years, we were both working, and at the middle of the day, I needed to go and get something from the local Target. You know Target. It's the one with the circle and the red dot. That's that place. So I went there, and I'm going aisle by aisle trying to find what I need, and I'm looking down the aisle, looking down the aisle, looking down the aisle, and I get to this aisle, and here's this woman pushing a cart coming toward me, and she's just beautiful, and I just had to stop and look. And it was this long before I realized it was Marion. For some reason, she was in the store, too, at that same time. But it took me that long to realize that this was my wife. I got to see her as if for the first time again. I got to be just taken aback by her for the first time again. And you can't get in trouble for checking out your own wife, okay? Just in case you're wondering. Why didn't I recognize her? Why did it take me so long? because I wasn't expecting her there. That was the last thing that I was expecting. My expectations, what I believed, trumped what was right in front of me. I didn't recognize her. Now, this was just a daily occurrence. Imagine if she had died. Imagine if I watched her die. Imagine if I hastily wrapped her and buried her, and then I see her at the local Target. How long do you think it would have taken me to accept that one, huh? See, this is what they're up against, and we don't understand because we can't really put ourselves in their shoes. How long did it really take for Jesus' friends to really understand before they could accept this new reality, what had actually happened, what broke them through? There's so many stories, and they're all so good. Mary, at John 20, if you want to look it up, expected Jesus exactly where she left him. Of course she did. Why not? And she's all business. She's on a mission. 
She's going to get this body embalmed and ready. And she's, you know, it's a place to focus her grief. Of course it is, right? But it's something to do, something positive, something she knows how to do, something that feels normal. In several days where nothing is normal, where the unthinkable has happened. She's there. She's, she's like one of those cartoons. You know, the cartoon characters are running, running, running. They run off the edge of the cliff and they just keep going until they finally look down and realize there's nothing underneath them and then they fall. She's like that. She's speed talking. She's going and going and going. And then finally, Jesus says, Miriam, Miriam, shut up. <laughs> Stop. It's okay. And that tone of voice, that Intimacy, that familiarity breaks through and breaks the spell. And she realizes who he is. It took that close encounter, that voice that she'd heard a thousand times calling her name with that tone to break her through. Two of Jesus' followers are taking a seven-mile trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus, out in the country, out in the boonies someplace, and they're walking along the road, and a man comes up and starts asking them, what is it you're talking about? And he's like, are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened this weekend? Really? Sure. Head under a rock? What's going on here? And they're telling him everything that happened. And they walk along for hours together. And when they finally get to their destination, the man makes to be going further on, and they beg him, hey, it's almost, it's almost sundown. Come in and have dinner with us. And he does. And during the meal, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he passes it out. And at that moment, they realize who he is. That gesture that they had seen him do at every meal that they had together over and over and over again, that familiarity, that intimacy breaks the spell, opens them up, opens their eyes. They can see who is right in front of them. Peter says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> That's in John 21. And he's got a bunch of the guys with him. He's going fishing, you know. Thomas Didymus is there, and John is there, and several others. But you've got to read between the lines here. Peter isn't just going fishing. He's talking about going back to his old way of life. Remember when Jesus first saw him and called him, he just drops his nets. They all did, Peter and Andrew. And they just follow him. They left their old way of life. And for years now, they had been following Jesus in a new way of life. But he's got to go back. What is he supposed to do? He's got to make a living. He's going back to his old way of life, old routines, old patterns. And they go out and they catch nothing. And then here's this man calling to him from the shore. Got any fish, children? <laughs> you can just hear the dripping kind of sarcasm there. Well, put your nets over on the other side of the boat. I just love that. That irrational command, that quintessential Jesus who was always breaking the line of thought, breaking the logical direction. I mean, come on. But they do it, and they bring in the hall, and their eyes are opened, and they understand who it is that they're actually seeing and talking to. Yeah, and Peter jumps into the water and swims for shore because he can't wait for the boat to paddle another 100 yards. That's Peter. It's great. And he gets, to, to have a personality that is so strong that it's preserved for 2,000 years is amazing. That's Peter. And when they get to the shore and they get to Jesus, what is he doing? 
He's cooking breakfast. He's on his haunches over the fire, tending it, the fish, the bread. He's cooking breakfast. Nothing spectacular. He's just making the meal, as he had done so many times before. But it opens their eyes, that familiar gesture. Each time we see this pattern, the followers of Jesus not recognizing him, not expecting, not even believing it's possible for them to be seeing him. It is the smallest, most intimate gesture that breaks the spell. Nothing big, nothing spectacular. There's no choir singing. There's no rays of light pouring down. It's like when you get those ID questions for your security. What are they asking you? Not the big parts of your life. What was your third grade teacher's name? Do you remember your... You know, I actually remember mine, Mrs. McGinney. I don't know, that just popped in my head right now. <laughs> what was the first pet you ever had? Yeah? Can you do that one? Your mother's maiden name, well, that's pretty easy. Where were you born? But think about it. Think about those movies where there's a mistaken identity, and you're trying to figure out, is this really the person? It looks like the person, but it shouldn't be the person. Is this the person? How do I know? Well, where did we go that first date, you know, when this... It's the intimate details that prove our identity to each other, not the big spectacular things that everybody can know. It's the smallest things. We prove our identity to each other with intimacy, with nothing else. We only really know someone when we have shared the most intimate details with each other. You only really know someone when your toothbrushes are hanging side by side in the bathroom. That's when you get to know somebody. Those intimate details make all the difference. Jesus' friends had to re-experience intimacy with him before they could prove his identity, before they could prove to themselves who he was. And it's going to be the same with us. No different. It's not about believing big theological truths concepts, the resurrection, all of these. It's about letting those truths affect the most intimate experiences of our lives. It's about seeing those truths in our most intimate experiences. Because if they're not there, then they're not true for us. Do you see that? What is really true for us? Something that we just agree to mentally or something that actually gets in between the cracks of our lives, expands and contracts and changes the whole nature of our composition? That's when it becomes true. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Great line. And it's a central clue to what the gospel stories are trying to convey, trying to get across to us about seeing the risen Jesus. I used to think that if I walked with Jesus for three or four years, I wouldn't miss him. I'd know him. Of course I would. Haven't you all thought that sometimes? How could they be so blind? Come on. If we had walked with him, we would have known him, right? I would have listened to him. I would have understand. Really? Really? I spent a decade looking for Jesus starting 30 years ago. And I looked everywhere that I thought to look. I looked in my beliefs. I looked in my ideas. I looked in church. I looked in religion. I looked in theology. I looked in the Bible. 
I looked where I expected Jesus to be. In my beliefs, in my mind, in my ideas, in my thoughts. And he wasn't there. For 10 years, I felt like I was banging my head against the wall. I was learning more and more stuff. But I didn't feel like anything was changing. I still felt more neurotic than anything. He wasn't there. Because the moment that we settle on a belief, the moment we settle on an idea about God, God is no longer there. Why? Because life, because spirit, is defined by motion. Always in motion. I know we've said this a hundred times, that ruach, ruha, Aramaic and Hebrew for spirit, means breath, wind, and spirit all at the same time. All defined by motion. If there's no motion, there is no life. If there's no motion, there is no breath. If there's no motion, there is no spirit. Always in motion. Living things move. No motion, no life. Set belief is static. It's motionless. It's dead. It's no longer among the living, and Jesus is not there. Our set beliefs, the things that we say we agree on, that we land on, limit our ability to see anything new. New life, resurrection. We only see what we can expect to see. And we can't be broken free of that spell. The Gospels are telling us to look for the risen Jesus in the heart of our everyday lives. Because if you can't find Jesus there, if you can't find the miracle of new life there, then no matter what you know, he doesn't exist for you. Not in any way that we understand is transformative. What did it feel like for Jesus' friends to experience the resurrection? It felt intimate. It felt familiar. It felt like home, like coming home. After a long journey where everything has gone wrong and you come home and you can lay everything down and just go sit and feel everything, all the needles go back to zero to come home again. Until it was intimate for Jesus' first followers, it didn't exist for them. They couldn't see him. But when a loved one calls our name and we just hear that familiarity and everything in you responds, that breaks the spell. Can you see the miracle of life and new life in a moment like that? When everything, all that tension, all that anguish of that broken relationship flows out of you just in the embrace of the forgiving one, the one who is forgiving you, can you see resurrection in that renewed life? Jesus is always among the living. He's always among each detail of our lives. As soon as we decide where he's supposed to be, we're going to miss him. We're looking for Jesus in the clouds to return. 
and he's cooking breakfast on the beach. The Gospels are telling us where to look. We've got to listen. It's so difficult for us because it's pointing in such a different direction. But he's cooking breakfast. Now look, res- resurrection is a central tenet of the Christian faith. It's huge. It's transcendent, right? And it should be. It must be. Paul told us without the resurrection, there is no faith. There is no point to this whole thing. And he's absolutely right. The resurrection is the central piece. And nothing I am trying to say here is meant to diminish the immensity of the resurrection. But as long as resurrection remains this huge theological concept, it can't affect our lives intimately until we bring it in. Jesus saw his father in every detail of every day of his life, in every living thing, in every face and every person and every child and every woman and every nationality, every ethnicity. He saw his father everywhere and he called that seeing kingdom. That's what it feels like to live the embrace of the Father in every detail. His friends couldn't see that he had risen until they could see him in every detail of their lives. And neither will we. It's not what you believe. It's what difference it makes that you believe. When we find the risen Jesus, in each face and each embrace, then we can see him or not at all. Jesus is always in motion, always moving through, always blowing through, always looking back over his shoulder and beckoning us on. He's always the first guy in the pool. He has that exuberance. He has that audacity. He has that motion. He's always among the living. He is the most abundant of the living. And that's us, the living. If we're going to find Jesus, if we're going to find truly what resurrection means, it's when we see this new life in every face and every detail and not a moment before.